Kia ore ho mā, hoki mai ki te punua pahua huia come home, ko J10 nei, and it is good to have you with us. Earlier on this week, I was interviewed by a local radio station, community radio station in Dunedin called Otago Access Radio, or OARFM. The, uh, the DJ was a gentleman by the name of Mar- Marvin Hubbard, uh, an American man whom I met at Te Tumu Whakapono, the Māori Indigenous Theology Symposium, and he attended along uh, just to listen and just to learn and heard me speak and picked up a copy of my book and wanted to do an interview on me. So I have provided for you that interview in a slightly edited version. The interview was done over Skype, so the quality of the recording is very digital Skype recording. So it's not uh, the greatest, but uh, there's some good stuff in it that covers a lot of information and a lot of detail about a bunch of stuff to do with our history, Māori worldview, Samuel Marsden, Henry Williams, uh, uh, the nature of the treaty and the vision of Mātauranga Māori, the vision of Motown, yeah, the vision of uh, Mātauranga Māori to uh, bring healing to the world. So uh, here it is, enjoy. Good day, friends. Today we have with us Jay Ruka, author of Huia Come Home, and he is um, it's a story of the learning from that which is indigenous and to reassessing what is important to Aotearoa New Zealand. He will talk about what we can learn from comparing the physical loss of the Huia with the loss of Maori culture and language and an assessment of the first missionaries day to Aroa, and the Treaty of Waitangi, and the spiritual value Maori culture and language uh, gives to Aotearoa, New Zealand. Oh, good morning, Jay. I'm glad to have you with us. Morena, Marvin. Morena. Sorry, what was that? I missed that last part. What did you say? Good morning, Jay. Sorry, Jay. Thank you for the invitation. Did, Jay, um, what could you briefly describe your growing awareness of the importance of Maori indigenous culture and spirituality to yourself and your practice of Christianity? Oh, 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 uh, thanks Marvin. Yeah, all that to say is that I fuck a papa to Tiatiawa uh, and Taranaki Maunga, but I now live in Raglan. Uh, and yeah, it's good, 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 to, good to uh, good to be here. Um, I the growing awareness for me happened. Uh, when I first discovered uh, a part of the story of Christianity in New Zealand in 2008, I was a pastor's kid. Uh, I, I have grown up in, uh, in the, 
in the Christian tradition of the church, mainly Pentecostal and charismatic type settings. Uh, however, I was, uh, I think the first five years of my life, I might have been in the Anglican church. But, um, I, yeah, so it was 2008 when I first heard a story of the early Christian uh, Christianity in New Zealand. And I, I was both enthralled by that story in, in, in the sense of the amazing response that uh, my people um, tell Māori took to the stories of Christ. And then simultaneously, I was equally disappointed by some of the reaction of those who purported to be called Christians, but didn't act very Christ-like uh, as the story went on a few decades later. All right. Could you tell us about, there was a instance in your life that may have transformed your seeking your wife's dream, Aaron's Yeah, dream. yeah. Yeah, it's sure, Marvin. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was January 2008, really. We were, we were running this, my wife and I were running a summer gathering out on Aotea, Great Barrier Island, and we were learning about uh, church history. This, this particular week, we were hearing these stories of the church in New Zealand for the first time, and it was during the context of hearing those stories that Erin, um, my wife, had a dream, and in her dream, she saw a, a chicken, an unusually oversized chicken, very large chicken, that was like three stories tall, standing in front of a pahutakawa tree dominating the local landscape. The chicken was so big that even in her dream, Erin like, chuckled, she laughed, like, well, my goodness, that's a big chicken. you know. Uh, and then she, she heard the word huia and woke up. Now, my wife is from the United States, and so when I saw her, because uh, it was an afternoon nap because she was pregnant with our second child, I, uh, she goes, Jay, I just had this dream of a very large chicken and I heard the word huia. She's she's like, what? what's huia? And um, anyway, we talked about it with three people over the course of a year, uh, sort of held it close to our hearts. And anyway, I remember a friend of ours said to us, um, he goes, oh, well, one thing is pretty easy, really. And he just goes, the, the chicken's not from New Zealand. And it was that sort of suggestion that sort of, un, it, was, it was like a key that unraveled the puzzle, so to speak. And as soon as our friend said that, uh, I was like, yeah, that's, 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 that's the key hermeneutic to the dream, so to speak. And that, and that is, I mean, very easily the chicken the chicken as a bird is not indigenous to Aotearoa. It's not from here. Uh, it comes from somewhere else that has come here, but it's grown unusually oversized and is dominating the lands, the local landscape, whereas the huia, that which is indigenous to Aotearoa, uh, is unseen and unheard because it's become extinct. Uh, and um, and the dream, the, the, two, the two birds represent really two two approaches to life. One is that which comes to us from the Western world and that which is indigenous to New Zealand, which is represented to us by Te Ao Māori, by the Māori world. And it's not that Te Ao Māori is extinct because that's not, that's not the case. But by and large to the dominant culture of New Zealand, it is um, Te Ao Māori is um, unseen, unheard, unknown, foreign, uh, and that which 
yeah, that shouldn't be the case because it's uh, the huia is unique to our landscape. So the dream really represents to us, from this dream we coin this phrase called huia come home. In other words, we're living in an era of New Zealand's story where it's absolutely imper- impertinent that we learn from that which is indigenous to New Zealand, that which is unique to our landscape. And particularly, you know, my context, which has been Christianity, especially for that context, that we start to go, actually, there's a very, very reason why Siatua wanted to start uh, and to bring an understanding of the nature and character of God that is revealed in the story of Jesus to this land. What the dream really really represents and what the huia represents is that New Zealand really needs to not just look, not just listen, but truly learn from and embrace the uniqueness of te ao Māori that is given to us in this landscape. We often view things through very different lenses, don't we? Mm-hmm. Can yeah. you talk about that a bit um yeah i guess like a, like a, yeah what's the oh, difference in the in your view of the weakness of the western rationalist individual lenses for viewing reality and other yeah and other ways of viewing reality yeah come on so uh you know it, 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 people have described worldviews as lenses you know glasses that sit on your nose by which you look through but what you look through, you see everything. You, so you see everything through your worldview. Other people describe it as maps, as in they they lay out the territory of, of your life and where you're going and this sort of thing. So I, I think our, our worldview, which every single person has, the way that we have been um, both, I would say, gifted and inherited and culturally trained to see the world, you know, the the Western world predominantly, I mean, let's start off by saying the Western world is a gift. It is, it is a cultural lens by which the world has been able to connect at a level unprecedented in all of human history. So it's through that, you know, you know, someone has described the English language to be, you know, the most efficient, one of the most efficient in the world, you know. Um, so through the efficiency of Western thought, Western systems, Western language, the world has got to know each other. Um, but at the same time, the West is a cultural, economic and political empire that has spread its reach out all over the globe and, you know, world history says at some point empires end. And I think I think part of the weak, what we've seen in the weakness of the West is hyper-individualism. You know, that the beauty of English language is, is it efficient. The beauty of, oh, one, you know, what, this, what this, the scientific revolution, which is, come through us through the Western cultural lens, you know, is able to peer into the most minute detail of things. Uh, but that, that, what would you call that empirical 
way of viewing and that empirical way of describing means there's a box for everything and everything for a box. And that means that it, uh, to a degree, everything is labeled and categorized as an individual in and, in and of itself. So that hyper-individualism, which has come through the West, I think has come to us through a strength, but now has the pendulum has swung to being a weakness. And, and that is a... I think a, I think a meaningful loss of the human person as a community person, and I think John? the indigenous the indigenous lens sees not just people but everything in its relational context. So the beauty of the Maori worldview is that it sees things by what it relates to primarily, not as an individual thing. The individual thing is secondary, the relationship is primary, whereas in the West, individual is primary, relationship is secondary. Don't we become persons through relationship? Yeah, I believe so. It's the only way you can become a person, right? Through the relationship of a mum and, mum and a dad. <laughs> and, know, so it, it takes a relationship to birth you. It's a kind of a false consciousness to think that we're independent individuals. Well, it's uh, it's it, let's just say it's economically viable. Yeah, <laughs> Con, maybe convince convince someone that you need to build your life on who you want to be and who you are. Label yourself, call yourself this, because you you know because what 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 matters is what is important to you. Now, of course, there is truth in that, but you know, the greatest truths become yeah. the greatest monsters So, is at the same time, you know. So, um, both, I... Yeah, both indiv- indigenous uh, spirituality and culture challenges, also some Western thought, including advanced physics challenges that if you look at seeing light, and you look one way, you'll see particles, and if you look right. another way, you'll see uh, waves. But you right. can only see... One or the other, you have to realize that your lenses actually affect what you see. Right, right. Um, we were talking about individuality, and you were talking about Christianity earlier. Mm. Didn't early Christianity, particularly Paul, but also Judaism and Jesus, talk about community that we became. Christian not only as individuals but through our community. Yeah, uh, look, yeah, definitely. I think community, human community, is the place of. um, I guess it's the place where true and even which your true individualization comes out because you know yourself in the context of someone else. But it's but it's the place where we we are we are shaped. The most, you know, I, I think where Christ says that He will build His ecclesia, you know, He is building a community that is modelled after the nature of Christ as a triune being, if that makes sense, a community being. Paul talks about community a lot. People think of Paul as a conservative um, moralist, but. When you 
read him more thoroughly, you see that he is actually reacting strongly against the empire of his day, Rome. I think what St. Paul might be surfacely known for, let's just say, even like people might say his doctrines of salvation, his doctrine of woman and leadership, his doctrine of sexuality. Like what like people people might pick Paul and say, Oh, he might be he's pretty harsh on this and blah blah blah. blah. But but there's a I think like you say, there's there's a bigger story to which all that sits on. And that Paul is passionate about that God has embraced everyone, that God has embraced all cultures, not just the Jewish culture, which was the context, and that people, Jews, Gentiles, need to learn how to function and relate together in the the significance and the difference of each un- each other's cultural beauty. So I, I think I actually think that's one of the primary works of St. Paul, and trying to empower communities to live together. Could you um, talk about the um, introduction of Christianity to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Samuel Marsden, his views yeah. and methods? Yes, yeah. Um, you know, f- uh, one of the things about Samuel Marsden, you know, there's uh, there's the known story and then there's not known stories. There's the good guy, there's Samuel Marsden, the good guy, Samuel Marsden, the monster, and somewhere in the the myth of, of them all, you know, the truth is to be found. But I think, you know, our, our people who had been, you know, adventuring into the globe, you know, for a long time, but particularly into the into Western context in the late 1700s. And there's a chief by the name of Ruatara uh, from uh, from Rangihaua, Ohi Bay, up in the Pewhairangi, the Bay of Islands. And um, the, the story goes is that he was on board a ship, was hoping to sail somewhere, in a way, became captured, became a, a, a almost like a slave on a on a sealing ship. Got dumped into Norfolk Island because he thought he was going to die. He was super sick. Uh, went from Norfolk Island and made it to Sydney. And when he was in the harbour in Sydney, Samuel Marsden found him sort of on a boat and took him off the boat and took him to his house. And Marsden sort of nursed Ruatara back to health. And um, he was there for something like six to eight months or something in Sydney. And then anyway, Ruatara eventually made it made it back home to New Zealand and began to dialogue with his people and with his leaders, other rangatira of his tribes, uh, about this message of Christ that um, Samuel Marsden had, had told him about. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Ruatara and other rangatira uh, from his hapu and around, they actually discussed Samuel Master's message for a period of, say, between six to nine months. So his, it, it wasn't just Samuel Marsden, go, it wasn't just Marsden getting this idea to go, hey, I'm going to go over to Aotearoa and preach the gospel. What happened is Ruatara went back and he discussed it with his community for, for a good period of time. And it was when the consensus of the leaders actually said, so, okay, invite Marsden to come over, that Marsden came over at the invitation of Ruatara. And what we know is that uh, Marsden got here, I think it was around about December 22, 
21 or something. And, and then on December 25th uh, was the first uh, gospel presentation in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Now, the interesting thing about December 25th, 1814, was that there happened to be leaders from all over Napui, so all over Northland, that had been gathering at Rangihauwa that day or the day before. So what happened is that the, when Martin actually presented the gospel for the first time, he presented it where a whole bunch of leaders from all over Napui had gathered to hear him speak. So, of, of course, Ruatara, sorry, um, Marsden preached, Ruatara translated uh, and told him about the message and, and this sort of stuff. And it's interesting, Ruatara had prepared the people with uh, a haka, um, uh, a hari, which is known as hari anapui, which goes, you know, like kaneke neke, kanuku nuku, um, basically says, hey, we move, we move, we make way because there's this good thing coming across the waters and it's been planted here. It is good. It is peaceful. Uh, and over 400 uh, Napui men responded to Marsden's message with that. Now, Marsden himself well, like I said earlier, was a mixed bag. One, he believed that for the mission to start here, his desire was to try and civilise Māori. In other words, bring them into a European perspective. Now, Marston had the good intention of his heart in that because he was based in Sydney and saw Māori ships coming over and had done for quite a few years. He wanted to help Māori participate in the global economic trade environment. So his intent around civilising was to try and was was to help Māori participate in the international uh, economy. The, the negative side of that was that he believed that through that process, the gospel could be shared. So his first priority was to civilise through that process, share the stories of Jesus, which meant that the stories of Jesus would only come through an understanding of a European way of being, a European way of life, uh, which is why one of the reasons, there's two main reasons, but one of them was, the, which is why the gospel was slow, because of Marsden's foundational approach to civilised first. Yeah. What happened? How was the Bible translated into Māori, and what happened? What effect did that have in the growth of Māori Christianity? Yeah, uh, in um, in 1820, missionary Thomas Kendall um, took a trip back to England with the great uh, chiefs uh, Hongi Hika and um, um, Waikato, and they went up to uh, England and they spent some time with linguists at Cambridge University actually and were was one of the first times of actually trying to put the Māori language uh, 
into a written a written type of a form and type of context. And so from about from 1820 on, uh, Thomas Kendall, uh, as as a European missionary, was one of the first to start working on the language. And then it took it probably took about. Uh, 1823, 1826. So it was about six years later uh, that a guy called William Williams, who was Henry Williams's brother, goodness knows why mum and dad called him William. <laughs> but uh, William Williams set to work on what Kendall had started and a few other missionaries had had had, had begun down and really began to translate a lot of the... I think Ephesians might have been the first book translated. Uh, Ephesians, some of the Psalms, like that. It's a uh, the book known as um, today is um, Terawiri or the, the the Psalms of David. Uh, so there were Psalms. There was some of Paul's books, some of Jesus's books, and of course the book of Luke got put down, uh, got got put down, and then the Gospels, New Testament, and then eventually with. Uh, uh, I think Robert Mournsfall was in, in, in involved with the Old Testament as well, which came a bit later. But when the when the when the scriptures got put down, uh, so around the late twenties, coming into the thirties, eighteen thirties, that's where we see a major major breakthrough as far as the gospel of Christ being revealed to our people. A major reason for that, and that was because our people were fascinated with literacy. They were fascinated with reading because first, when our people saw that someone could write something, some marks on a piece of paper that came from their mind onto paper, give that paper to another person, and that person could read those marks of their mind, that our people thought that that was mind reading, and considered that to be magic. Now, magic, like supernatural powers, which was something that was a part of our community, uh, was pretty much only only the tohunga could participate in that sort of stuff. And to be a tohunga, you had to be chosen from your people and then isolated since the time of you, you were a child and trained. But all of a sudden, here was a magic that everybody could get, the magic of mind reading. So when, when Māori understood reading to be magic there was a great hunger for our people to want the magic so our, our our people just become passionate man give me the magic so people learn to get the magic but the only thing that was down was the stories of jesus so in grabbing uh the magic people grabbed the stories of jesus now they grabbed the stories of jesus after a, a decade that was known as the the, the musket wars uh, or the New Zealand Wars, and that was um, in the 1820s, a decade of devastation where the musket was introduced, and funnily enough, the great chief, Hongi Hika, who had gone to England in 1820, came back, well, actually, he met King George in England, King George was mesmerised by him, just loaded him up with a whole bunch of goodies, when Hika got to Sydney, he traded a lot of those goodies, most of them, for muskets, came back to New uh, Aotearoa, and uh, began to go and extract Utu on tribes around the uh, around the North Island. So the 1820s saw a layer of death that our people had never experienced before. Fast forward to the late 20s, early 30s, people began to read about Jesus, 
which is what the missionaries had been trying to communicate since 1814. And our people were like, oh, this guy Jesus is amazing. And the message of Jesus was love your enemies, lay down your life for your friend, bless those who persecute you. So those messages of Jesus off the back of a decade of war and death and mass slavery, thousands upon thousands of slaves all around the North Island taken up to to Northland. Those messages of Jesus at that time and into that context absolutely resonated amongst our people. And, 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 And the gospel of Jesus took off because our people read about Christ in our own language and began to be communicators of Jesus in our own language. Okay, that that says a lot, not only about it, the Bible, but it says a lot about my yeah. people. Dude, you tell, tell me about it. Our, our people took, what, as far as literacy goes, Blumen took reading, and not just reading, but the apprehension of what they read. Like, like our ancestors were amazing. You know, if you, you fast forward a decade after that and you, you meet leaders like um, Tamihana Te Raupua, uh, not Tami, uh, Tamihana Te Waharoa from Ngāti Hauā, that dude could memorise books of the Bible, man. Just me- memorise them, you know. It's incredible. Can we talk about uh, William Williams' brother, Henry Williams? Yeah, sure. And uh, his early missionary efforts in Aotearoa. And then we'll also talk about his importance in the treaty but okay first cool. briefly um how did he approach uh, uh being a missionary in um uh, in north island as opposed to earlier efforts yeah okay yeah yeah so he um uh henry williams and his wife mary ann williams they uh they joined the church missionary society the cms sort of convinced to join um and they came here in 1823 and the instructions that the CMS gave him was to to reorientate the mission from its civilized approach to be able to share the gospel, the stories of Jesus with Mark. So Henry sort of turned the mission upside down, which was rough, nearly a decade old. And when he gets here, he he his mission is to learn the language. So you can read about him and his brother studying. They they would study the language for like three hours every morning. They would just learn. They did that for years. But his his approach was really, hang on, we are English people in the world of the Māori. We shouldn't be trying to help Māori become English. We should be becoming Māori, you know, learn about the, the, the Māori world. So he his posture was the opposite of Marsden's approach. And this is where... You know, Marsden might get some slack when you compare it to that, but Marsden is he's also not hes not as sort of simple or as bad as what that civilised thing might sound, but that's another story. But but Marsden, sorry, uh, Williams, Henry Williams, or Karufa as Māori called him because he wore glasses. Karu is your eyes, uh, far is four, so Māori called Henry four eyes because he wore glasses. So Karufa um, really did change change the orientation and that was that as European people they were there to learn about Māori and learning from their way of life find the way to share the stories of Christ in a Māori way that made sense the um, 
something was going on in England at the time too in the colonial office that the politically in parliament and the colonial office wasn't there that influenced their attitude toward colonization to maybe be a little different than they had been in Australia and in some other places Uh, can you talk about what was the ideology behind that and who were these people okay if you you track if you sort of track what I would call the whakapapa the, the genealogy of that story then um, you 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 find people like um, John Wesley and the Wesleyan revival that hit England in the mid 1700s. Uh, you see people like you see that story. Wilberforce was one of the people that was influenced by that, wasn't it? Which which becomes Wilberforce becomes post Wesley. So Wesley's last letter that he wrote on his deathbed was to. Uh, was to William Wilberforce. Wesley writes to Wilberforce to say, in all your power, you need to see the slave trade end. Um, so so the, the vision behind the slave trade for Wilberforce was really empowered by the preaching of John Wesley. And, uh, and, and Wilberforce and his crew... It's not, it's not just Wilberforce. He represents a community of people that really ran... Uh, an effort. Well, Wilberforce was was a spokesperson, much like Martin Luther King was the spokesperson of the civil rights movement in the states, but he wasn't the brains behind it. Um, but uh, but Wilberforce became that spokes that spokesperson and uh, rallied behind. In any way, once that took what was it something like twenty five years of Wilberforce's work, a long time. But post the slave trade. Ending basically Wilberforce's, uh, if you want to look at an age term, nephews, so the generation after Wilberforce, they're still alive at the same time, who grow up at the feet of Wilberforce and um, uh, William Pitt, the former prime minister, and um, John Venn, these people, they set to work, say, around about 1835, following the slave trade coming down, they, they started an organisation called the uh, the Aboriginal Protection Society. In other words, they were these politicians or people who worked in, in politics were equally concerned not just about the evils of the slave trade, but the way the British Empire operated amongst Indigenous people. Um, in 1837, um, the com- there's a select committee's report to the House of Commons that just laid out this macro picture of the way the British Empire had related to indigenous peoples around the world, including New Zealand, and they just they just railed on the empire essentially to say that the way that the British Empire had treated indigenous peoples wherever the empire went was no longer option. Um, was 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 terrible and needed to stop. So, and at the same time, in 1837, there was also interest to colonise New Zealand stepped up as well around that same time.
So a company started in England. They wanted to go and basically send settlers over to New Zealand and buy land for cheap, sell it at a profit to settlers. And were, they, were their main aim the good of poor English people, or they're, were they making a profit? Were they a corporation? No, they, they, they definitely had um, they, they definitely had a dual um, a mixture. They did want to help their people in England, but the main thing was profit. Definitely, the main the main thing was profit. They wanted to 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 to, to make money. They they looked around England, the slums of England, to see that our slums were filled. How do we appease this situation? We're the British Empire. We've got all these colonies around the world. So let's. Let's focus on Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. They started with New Zealand. Let's mm-hmm. send poor people out to these places uh, and and buy land for cheap and sell it on sale. What was the these. reaction of the missionaries in New Zealand? They were anti that idea on okay. every level. On every level, the missionaries in New Zealand, uh, they're, they're the leaders of the, or the people working for the CMS in England, and then those... Now, just remember, like Wilberforce was a part of a group called the Clapham Sect. The Clapham Sect influence in the 1830s. They were also at work against the uh, the immigration of uh, European settlers to Aotearoa, New Zealand. They didn't want to see settlers come out here either. So, where did the treaty come in, and why was was it? Yeah. Did so they intend, in, did they intend the treaty to be a serious option? Yeah, the, as opposed the, to say somebody, a lot of treaties with Aboriginal yeah, people. Yes. Yeah. There's 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 a difference with our treaty that wasn't present in other other treaties, and that was a I, I would say a a a gospel conscience. Other, you know. Pr- Treaties were made as charlatan treaties to try and appease and rip people off. Hey, you know, sign this. We can come on your land. We'll pay you this or pay you later or whatever it is. But the New Zealand Treaty was, like, from its inception in England was different. And it all came out of the story of the the report to the select committee report to the House of Commons. It came out of that. it, It came out of basically English people, Christians in the New Zealand government trying to stop the New Zealand company, actually. Like, if because the, the New Zealand company, they just they had been lobbying from 1837. When the idea of the treaty was coming about in 1839, the New Zealand company just said, oh, bugger the government, we're just going to send settlers out anyway. So they just started to, 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 to try and send settlers out. And so very quickly the impetus was made to the British government needed to annex New Zealand to try and have some legal authority in that ground to be able to say to their own people, stop, <laughs> essentially. So that was one of the reasons uh, behind the treaty from the missionaries' perspective. Okay, how was Henry Williams important in the Maori acceptance of the treaty? And in your opinion, was in intentions malign or did he inten- did he intentionally lie yeah, in the yeah. so, chiefs, or yeah. what were the what were uh, what did he what were his intentions and what did he mean has he been yeah, sure so uh, my my Fikaro, uh is a, 
as an educated guess as anyone else's is. So we'll never know until we actually meet the follower, post the veil, and go, bro, what, you know, what were you, what, what, what were you thinking? You know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, my reading of it is the opposite to how the story has been told since 1972. And the story since 1972 is Henry Williams intentionally miss wanted the treaty and he mistranslated it, put a different word to try and soften the blow to trick Māori into signing the treaty so the Crown could come in and take the land. So that's the general narrative. I believe that's completely wrong. Um, and um, while we don't have time to fully unpack that right now, but essentially Henry's... Um, so let's go. 1839, Tamihana Te and Mā Fifi uh, the son and nephew of the great chief Taropaha, they come up to the Bay of Islands because they wanted a missionary. Henry goes back with them with a young fellow called Octavius Headfield. They sail down the east coast. They come into Whanganui Atara, the harbour of what is now known as Wellington, and they see a whole bunch of settlers there. And Henry's like, well, who are you guys? And they're like, we're the New Zealand company. We've just bought Wellington. Cut a long story short, Henry sails up to round to Otaki where he's going to drop the missionary off and Tamihana Tarapa. And he, a storm blows him off over to Golden Bay. He gets to Golden Bay. He sees settlers there. They're like, Who are you? Hi, we're the New Zealand company. We've just bought from Collingwood through to Kaikoura, you know, all of this land. Henry is just fuming. He's like, There's no way that you settlers can buy all this land with a few trinkets. Like, it's just not it's not a done thing do you know how to speak maori well no you know um so henry henry then goes he makes it to otaki drops him off and then henry walks home takes him two and a half months to walk from otaki to todonga and then sails back home to the bay of islands everywhere he's going he's meeting chiefs and it's in the air he's like chiefs go man these these people coming from across the waters and they're wanting land what, what what do we do henry arrives 11 days before hobson arrives with the draft of the treaty so henry knew that something needed to happen to secure the land for maori not in maori's mind but in all of these people coming across from england and that there was a body of a european culture that could protect that land on behalf of Māori. So Henry was hoping that the treaty was a protector for Māori so that willy-nilly from England or Europe or anywhere couldn't just come here and just buy land off anyone whenever they wanted in, a, in some sort of shady deal. Henry's hope was that the treaty would stop every shady deal. However, five years after the treaty, that story began to change. Okay, how did it change? Was it just the number of settlers who came, or did um, the government in England change? Or, it, no, or, what, what, what happened is that I, I think Henry's intentions, which he writes about himself, calling the treaty the Magna Carta of the New Zealanders, that's a big story, but Henry, um, things began to change. In 1845, Honeheke and Ruku, uh, Ruku um start with the Battle of Rua Pika Pika. So the so the the, the land wars the, sort of fiascos begin out of um, you know Honeheke K 
cutting down the flagpole, and the reason he cut down the flagpole because it was his flagpole that he dedicated on his land to fly um, to Cutter. In other words, the United Tribes of Aotearoa flag, but the British put up the British flag, and he said, no, that's not that for that, so he cut it down. Um, anyway, so Raru, Raru began to break out from 1842, 1845, Rua Pika Pika. From 1845, the British Crown send in their rogue, and his name is Governor Gray. Governor Gray gets here uh, around 1845. He asks the question when he gets here, who are Māori listening to? And and all the Europeans said they listened to Henry Williams. So Henry Williams was the most respected European in the country from the 1830s through to 1845. Gray gets here, and his number one strategy to exercise British sovereignty was to first destroy the reputation of Henry Williams, which he did. He basically made up a whole bunch of lies about Henry Williams, had those lies posted in newspapers of England to save face the CMS had to fire uh, had to fire Henry Williams. So how's this? For, when, when the British began to truly exercised their version of sovereignty in the, in this nation. Their number one strategy was to suppress the voice of Henry Williams, was to suppress the missionary voice, which was 100% pro-Māori. At that, at that time, the church changed, of course, when after heavy settlement, didn't it? Briefly. Oh, it kind of changed before, like real truly heavy settlement didn't come to probably the 1870s was heavy, heavy settlement. There was definitely settlement in the 50s, late 40s. Um, it began to change from 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 1840, 45-ish, and then the church, Bishop Selwyn came in. He became the first, you know, uh, th- you know. There's the missionary church, and then there's the settler church. Bishop Selwood comes in as really the first leader of the settler church that establishes the official church. I mean, Pompalia, he did establish the Catholic Church in 1838, but in you know, some but, um, ways, the Anglican Church with the three Tiakana is that a move to bring some of Mari. Culture yeah, so 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 t- twenty five years ago, when that that came into play, definitely began as a hope to to see a, a like in a, in a way power shed. You know, uh, you know, Maori and Pacifica have their own voice in this in this motu. But what has happened, and well, this is just my opinion, but what has happened in in that twenty five year history is that. They've now broken off into separate streams, which I, I think, on a lived level, have now become very disconnected. Oh. I, I know, I, I know, from a leadership level now that their heart, the heart is different. But what is actually lived and practiced is the tikanga pakia do the tikanga pakia thing, the tikanga Maori thing do the tikanga Maori thing. Okay. But at the same time, and I, as I say that, I, I know for sure they are beginning to talk about this issue, this problem, and trying to make and beginning to make change. So that's another good okay. thing as well. Do you think that very briefly? We've only got a few minutes now. Does indigenous culture and Maori culture have a a real gift for the problems we have in the world with inequality and an environmental disaster? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. 
look, it's indigenous people have not ruined the world, right? There is no indigenous tribe that has ruined the planet, other than in, what we would say a, indigenous Western. We have a view of the planet that can be helpful for. Uh, I, I, I think indigenous people and, and Te Ao Māori, as a, as a nation that is committed at its foundation to be in partnership with West, see, to, this is what the treaty is, a partnership with Western ways of being and a partnership with indigenous Mātauranga Māori ways of being. When, when Western New Zealand can truly become in partnership with Māori from at every single level, that needs to happen because hidden in the Mātauranga Māori worldview are ways of treating the, the earth that are going to heal the earth, that are going to restore the place. So I, I think, yeah, I think the, the vision of that the Māori world has to do to offer the world, the way we treat the environment, the West needs to learn from the Indigenous perspective. Okay, thanks a lot for coming on, and I wish we had more time, but... Uh, uh, it's in our next well, let's do it again, bro. <laughs>